Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. Hello and good afternoon. It's lovely to be with you again. I am, as always, Elaine. I'm your host on Suicide Zen Forgiveness. And I'm very excited to have an incredible guest today. I just want to give you a little tidbit about our guest. Debbie Hampton is the author of Beat Depression and Anxiety by Changing Your Brain. And she's written a memoir, Sex, Suicide, and Serotonin, Taking Myself Apart and Putting Myself Back Together. There's a title for you. She writes for the Huffington Post, Mind Body Green, and more. And on her website, The Best Brain Possible, which we will give you the link to when we're done, she shares information and inspiration on how to better your brain and your life. Today, we're going to talk about her recovery from a suicide attempt and resulting brain injury, and how she's become the inspirational and educational writer that she is today. So without further ado, hello, hello. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to have you here. And I just, before anything, I have to, I so love your accent. Oh, well, thank you. I'm in North Carolina. Oh, And it was a lot worse before my brain injury and I had to relearn how to speak again. You think wow. this is strong. It has gone away. <laughs> Well, it is absolutely charming. Well, thanks. So that's that's a good lead-in because that's the first thing you said and last thing I said about you was that you are recovering or you have recovered from a brain injury. So what I'd like you to go ahead and do is why don't you give us the story of your journey and then we'll take it from there. Okay, um, I guess we start, we can start all the way back, like childhood. And I, like I said, I grew up in North Carolina, and I grew up to a middle class family, a very loving, um, typical family for that time. And as was typical, my parents weren't incredibly mentally intelligent, emotionally intelligent, um, but I mean, they were for the time. It's just how much we've evolved and how much we know now as weird then. So I learned unhealthy ways of coping and I learned and modeled what I saw, which was catastrophizing, um, overreacting, dramatizing, black and white thinking, negative thinking, all of those and i learned anxiety um it probably is somewhat physically predisposed but you also learn that behavior a lot from your models 
your environment. So I learned how to be anxious and I also learned how to have uh, black and white thinking and I had several family members that committed suicide. Uh, my grandfather shot himself in the head when I was, I think, 11 or 13. And his father shot himself in the head. And I had a cousin that shot himself in the head. Um, and depression, suicidality, all that is kind of, kind of on the same gene or it's kind of the same mental health predisposition in your mental health repertoire in your brain and alcoholism, all that is kind of related. But so whereas suicide may not even be an option to some people, to me, it was like, okay, it was always just one of the options. So I proceeded to grow up and I was like an awkward, gangly uh, preteen, but I kind of blossomed and I started dating like I had never dated anyone before at all because they weren't interested in this. My nickname was monkey. They weren't interested in the monkey, but I started, I think my junior year in high school dating the best looking uh, most popular guy in the high school went back when they gave those kind of um, unhealthy monikers. But so my identity was still forming and my mental health was still forming and it became all intertwined in him. And I never really developed myself or my own mental health or ego or pride or any of that and so i it wasn't a healthy relationship but to me it was like life or death so i hung on to it all through college and we got married right after college and i mean we did have breakups but none where we were too far away from each other. We were always in each other's orbit. And so when we got married right after college, he was a year ahead of me. So he immediately got a job and I got a business degree. He got what was the equivalent of a computer degree back then. But this was back when computers took up a whole room. And the only degree was really a math degree. But I mean, he was on the forefront of computers. So of course he got a really good job and his career started ex taking off and excelling. And I was more than happy because I was anxious and lacking self-confidence. And because my worth was all tied up in him, I was more than happy to peek out the world behind his shoulder and follow him. So we got married right after college and proceeded to move to Kansas City. And then we proceeded to move to 11 places. And I mean states, Texas, Florida, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. 
I mean, we moved around so much that I became more and more isolated and more dependent on him. And has, as he grew in power, he became more controlling and more narcissistic. And maybe those tendencies were always there. I don't know. But they became more dominant as he became more powerful. And as he became, as he grew, I shrunk. Mm-hmm. And I was more than happy to stay, to start staying home when I had my first child nine years into the marriage. And I think at that time we were living in Florida. And I stayed home, took care of the son. And in between, I had another son three years later. And in between that, my my best friend in the world, my brother, who was 10 months older than me. As a matter of fact, my mother used to dress us as twins. And we were in separate grades, but we were very close in age. And... I don't know, he was my best friend in the world and he was gay and he got AIDS back when the first epidemic went around in the early 90s. And um, I made a promise to him at that time that no matter what was happening in my life, that I would take care of him. And I did, I took care of him for about two years while I was sick. And like I said, we were living in Florida. I had one son at the time and I would pack up all the baby stuff, the um, porta crib, the bottles, the toys, you know, all the stuff. And I would drive to Atlanta where he was living and I would stay for weeks at a time and take care of him. So here I was being a caregiver to a terminally ill person and I was in my early thirties and I was also taking care of an infant who was less than a year old. And as you can, and as any caregiver knows, um, it's stressful mentally, emotionally, physically. And I was never good at taking care of myself or meeting my own needs and much less than I mean, so I would say that my mental health was not great to begin with, Mm -hmm. but as life just kept piling on one thing after another, I got more mentally unhealthy and I just got beat down and depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, My first son was born. My brother died after I took care of him for two years, which was incredibly stressful. So I had an, I mean, my answer was to have another son. I mean, I always wanted more children, but I don't know. It just kind of in such dark period of my life, it seemed like a, a way to give back, a way to regenerate. So I had another son. And the ex-husband proceeded to pursue the career. And at the, by this time, he wasn't around a lot. He traveled. And at this point, 
we were living in a million dollar house in Palm Harbor, Florida with a pool in the backyard and a Porsche in the garage. And while it looked like life was going wonderful, I was the most miserable I'd ever been because of all these things that happened and my lack of support system and my lack of knowledge about how to take care of myself or how to help myself, how to get others to help me. So I, I think that was my first suicide attempt and I, um, escaped in my minivan and overdosed on I think I, I parked in the parking lot of Walmart a 24-hour Walmart and I went inside and bought a bunch of knockable and like I don't know Tylenol and the um I don't know other things and laid down in my van drank a six pack of wine coolers and tried to kill myself. But I woke up a couple of hours later and the whole, the whole thing that spurred this is my husband's ex served me with divorce papers. He wanted a divorce. And, um, so I woke up and was like, Oh crap. And so I drove home. And of course, wrecked the car. Um, we yeah. would say he didn't react well. He served me with a restraining order and kicked me out of the house. And he was very thorough. He did. He made sure I couldn't go anywhere near the kids' schools, activities, yeah. anything. So I went back to North Carolina for a month or so, and something clicked in me that had never clicked before and I realized that my ex was somebody I needed to protect myself against. I mean I always thought he was my protector and that I could hide behind him but I realized that I couldn't. And I also realized that I might not fight for myself, but I was going to fight for those kids. And so I proceeded to do everything I could to play the good wife, get back in the house, which I did. And we stayed married for two more years. And that whole time I was the good wife. I even had like corporate Christmas parties and st I mean, I played the part, but the whole time I was socking money away in a secret account. And I wasn't exactly sure what I was waiting for, but I knew I would know it when I saw it. And when he came home and told me that he wanted to move again, this time to Idaho, I knew that was it. I told him I didn't want to go. And so he proposed, he did this. He proposed that we have a commuter marriage where he was 
and you would buy a house for me and the kids in North Carolina where we could stay permanently. And he would just move around and go where his job needed him to go and visit us periodically. And I was like, yeah, that would work. So you can imagine what I did. I filed for divorce in Florida before we left. And the moving truck came and packed up the household um, and took it, part of it to Idaho and part of it to North Carolina. And when the kids and I were safe and unpacked in North Carolina, I called him and said, oh, by the way, I'm divorcing you. So needless to say, that didn't make him really happy. He continued to harass me for years. And I mean, lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit, which took a lot of my money. It mentally stressed me out, yeah. I mean, degraded me. And of course, my answer was to find another man because I didn't know how to work. I didn't know how to do anything, but I did know how to get a man. And I was good at it. So I proceeded. That was right when computer dating was just starting. So I got on Match.com and found uh, another guy that was very similar to I was going to say, yeah. Um, and we proceeded to date on and off for about three years. And he had other women and didn't treat me well and all this. And to condense the story, at, at about three years, with all this other stuff still going on with the ex, all the legal hassles, um, I thought he and I were planning a future together. And I bought a lot. It was starting to build a house beside him about an hour away and um he broke up with me so and my ex served me with another lawsuit oh my god and so at that point i said i'm out here and believe it or not my ex and his lawyer and i was i was convinced because of all the stuff they said that I was a bad person and that I was a bad mother and that my children would be better off without me. I mean, I, I know how skewed that sounds, but I really believed it at the time. That's how little self-esteem I had because frankly, it had been beaten out of me. And I mean, I was an expert at playing the victim, but I was also a victim. I mean, I allowed this to happen, but it did really happen. I mean, I was abused emotionally and mentally. And that's how I got to the point that I did. So I tried to end my life again. And this time I almost succeeded. I put myself in a coma for a week. Wow. Uh, when I woke up, I, I overdosed on drugs again and alcohol. 
when I woke up from the coma, I could speak. I had basically no memory. Um, I still thought I was married to my ex. I thought my brother was still alive. I didn't know my second son had been born. Um, I had a constant tremor. I couldn't speak, like I said. All I could do is make sounds. It sounded like my mouth was wide shut and full of marbles. And it was really confusing because I could hear my, what I wanted to say in my head, but it didn't come out my mouth. But to condense everything, it took years to recover from the brain injury, physically and mentally. But it was probably one of the best things that happened because it totally upended my life. My ex sued me again and took the kids away after the brain injury and won and moved to a different state, which does seem cruel. But actually, he did me a favor because I could not have invested the time I needed to, the time and the energy I needed to heal if he had not taken the kids. Yeah. And frankly, at that point, they were better off with him. Yeah. So here I was severely brain injured. And my kids were taken away and living in a different state with my ex and his wife. I don't think they were married yet, but it was it was a woman he was having an affair with when we were married. Oh my god. Yeah. But um like I said, I mean at first it was very, very dark. And I totally was trying to figure out a way that I can do my life again or check out because if I thought things were bad before, oh yeah. my gosh, they were so much worse now. But about six months after the suicide attempt, I had a near drowning experience. I went to Hawaii with my brother that my Atu, the one that's alive, he lived in California. And I know he, he, he planned this trip as kind of a way to help me have something to look forward to and cheer me up. But now I still was very impaired. And I used to be a competitive swimmer and I was a lifeguard all through high school and college. So I'm a good swimmer. But we went to Hawaii and we're snorkeling around this bay. And the waves were really strong. And I kicked off my fin. I had fins on, on like one of those coral rocks underneath the surface. And I wasn't nearly as strong a swimmer without the fin. So I'm going down yelling, help, help. And my brother sees me from the shore and he says, Stay right there. I managed to swim over to a rock that was sticking out of the bay and it was coral. And coral cuts you. Yeah. So here I am hanging on to this rock with my hands and my feet bleeding. And I saw a sailboat bobbing in the bay. 
and I decided to swim to the sailboat. So I made it, and then I'm hanging on the side of the sailboat, and some scruffy guy comes up aboard on top and was like, looking like he was like, am I seeing this? Is this real? <laughs> but he pulled me over and rows me to shore in a little little canoe kind of boat. And we finished out the trip and I never went snorkeling again. But I'll tell you the value in that experience. And I didn't realize this until I got home. When I got home, I realized, okay, six months ago, you tried to end your life. And here was the perfect opportunity. All you had to do was slip under the water. And I realized that I didn't want to die. That my assets wanted to live. What I wanted was to stop the pain. Yep. And from that point on, I decided I wanted to live and I started acting like it. And I found out everything I could over the next so many years about how to rehabilitate my brain, how to get better emotionally and spiritually, and how to revamp the way I thought and approach life. And that right there, your brain, the way you think, what you say to yourself, is the difference between a happy, calm life. And that right there was the key to stopping all that pain. I want to stop. Yeah, painful, bad things happen. My brother died. My ex had an affair and took the kids away and divorced me. Whatever. All that does happen. And I mean, not, I'm not saying anything bad in anybody's life has not happened. And that their pain is not justified. But what I'm saying is what you do with the pain and with the experiences of life can make it worse and make it harder or you can help yourself and make it better. I'm not saying you, you can think positive and just make rainbows appear, but I'm saying you can help yourself. And that right there is the choice that we all have. Yes. Okay, I'll not for a minute. That's so good. It's so good. Debbie, you just you hit the nail on the head there. The bottom line is we have choice. It's up to us to choose what we do with what we're presented with. Exactly. Okay. On the website, people know. My thing is, if you present me with a giant hill of horseshit, I will get a shovel and start digging because there's got to be a pony there somewhere. Right. It's that choice. Okay. I don't choose to see the horse shit. I choose to look for the pony. 
And that's what you just showed is that that choice, that ultimate, to me, it's the ultimate calling on courage, that seed within you that knew you wanted to go on, which I am very thankful that you did. I'm thankful I get to talk to you today. And wow, what a journey. And now, uh, a much lauded author, uh, you've got a number of books published. What's next for Debbie? Well, I'm working on the third book very slowly because, I mean, you said I'm a lauded author. <laughs> what I would love to do is make a living from the books and writing and speaking and my website, but I don't. So I do work a job. So who knows? Well, uh, I think I think you just have to call on courage once again and make the choice that that's what's going to happen. Because I think you have an incredible story and I think it can help so many people. Well, we unfortunately, um, my oldest son spent most of the his years with me before he went to live with his dad. So he, when I was mentally unhealthy, so he learned all the negative thinking and reacting habits. And I've spent the last five years since he came, he came to live with me after college. And he's about an hour away now. But we've been relearning ways of responding and emoting. And he just found out today that he did not get a job. A job that he really wanted. Oh, and I hate that. Yeah. But I told him, okay, what is most important is not the after job, whether you get it or not. What is important here is how you respond to the experience. Yes. And how you learn and how you persevere and how you grow. That is actually more valuable than getting the job so everything in life can be a stepping stone or uh food for growth yep. if we let it yes and i know that sounds i don't know i know a lot of people don't want to hear that but it really is yeah. the um key to making life easier for yourself rather than harder. Well, not only that, but I know I am the eternal optimist. So to me, what the job he didn't get today, it might actually be a good thing because the job that's coming along is going to be way better and better suited to his talents. And, and having to wait, he may appreciate it even more. Well, what I tell them is things will work out in the end because you don't stop until they do work out. Yeah. Yeah, that, I don't believe in quitting. That's been, I've, I've seen that. I've proven that true. Yes, you uh, certainly have. Anybody that has been brain injured 
knows it's a long haul. Yes. I mean, it takes years to recover from a brain injury. And I, I believe, okay, if I can do that, I can do about anything. They say, how do you eat the elephant? One bite at a time. Yes. So, so true. Oh, this, this has been wonderful. I thank you ever so much. I agree with everything you've said because I too understand that, you know, when you get knocked down, you got to get up again. You just have to. And there are times when the knockdown was by ourselves. And those are the times you really have to get back up again. And, you know, lose that mantle of victim and take on the mantle, not just of survivor, but of thriver. I do think it's important that we allow ourselves to be sad and oh, we yeah. allow ourselves to grieve and we even allow ourselves to be mad and unhealthy for a while. Yeah. You, you can feel those things, but you don't stay there. It's absolutely, you're absolutely right. And, and I just spoke with another guest about this because we were talking about feelings and how all feelings are valid. All of them. Okay. Anger can motivate you. Anger can, can show you a different path. It can get you out of a funk. It's not a bad thing. None of the emotions are bad, but we're all so conditioned not to feel our emotions. And um, the guest was talking about a wheel of emotions that, that he uses. And I think it came from um, a psychiatrist. It's, it's a tool that they use. But I said, you know, it's funny. Um, I didn't go through psychiatry or any of those things, but I actually learned like most things from nature. And when you, when you see, I, I always use the analogy of antelopes, antelopes that are escaping a lion will run and run until they're free. And then they all stop and almost as a single unit, you can watch them all shudder. They shake it off. And humans, we don't do that. We don't know what to do with emotions. And the other thing that I only learned in this past year is, you know, emotions, feelings, they have about a 90 second lifespan, 90 seconds. So if you let yourself go through those 90 seconds of whatever the feeling is, and then physically, okay, mentally make yourself shudder like an animal to let it go the all the all the um the people that are in alternative medicine and what have you talk about uh, uh all feelings all emotions are meant to flow and go and that's exactly what it is because we as humans often will hang on to things and and that can you know, cause all kinds of dis-ease and, and cause us all problems. But part of the issue, I believe, is we don't teach children early enough that feelings are valid. The good, the bad, the ugly, they are valid. Let them feel their feelings. 
but let them know that they have to then move on. Like I said, I grew up in a home that was very, very common. I mean, and healthy for that time, but mm -hmm. I wasn't really allowed to show emotion. Oh, no, 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 you weren't. Which, I know, was, I, which was commonplace. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you didn't get angry. You didn't get overly loud. You you had to sort of, you know, toe that middle line. Right. <laughs> As a child, I was always told I was too boisterous, too loud, too whatever, because that's not what was expected. You were supposed, yeah, toe the line, run down the middle. You know, that, that middle ground was always the way. And in fact, it's not. And I think it's really important now that the younger generations are being much more involved in understanding that we have feelings and, and in, in putting their feelings out there, which I think is important because we don't Elaine, want people. Sorry. Elaine, that's one reason why um, physical exercise yeah. is so important is yeah. because it's one way that we can release that energy. Yeah. Um, have you read any Stephen Levine? Uh, I mean, he's sure. the one, he's the one that I forget it. He's got a couple books, but he's the one, if you read his stuff, he's the one that talks about how animals shake off stress. Oh, really? Oh, Stephen okay. Line. And we don't do that. No. Like you said, no. but that's one thing that exercise or just moving our bodies. Yeah. yeah. And one reason is so important. We, we are not meant to be sedentary creatures. Yeah. yeah. I look at mental health now as a lifestyle. Yeah. Mental yeah. health is, is diet, exercise, sleep, emotional, what, what I do with my emotions. Yeah. Um, it's meant for me, it's meditation. Yeah. And it may look different for other people, but self care is important. It is about your mental health. It's not about indulging no. yourself or spa weekends. It's about health. And there is no separation between physical and mental health. Um, they used to think your brain was what they call immune privileged. Yeah. But they now have found immune vessels all in your brain. And that's your mind-body connection. That's how immune disorders, that's how your mind causes problems and disease in your body. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of it is chronic stress causes inflammation in your brain and body, yeah. which comes out as disease. So when we think we don't have a lot of influence or control over these things, we do. Oh, and yeah. your control is in the little habits you do every single day. It's not what you do once a week. It's yeah. whether you take a walk for 30 minutes that day and the next day and the next and the next. And whether you get enough sleep. Sleep is so important to help. And how you deal with stress, how you get it out. And, and, and mindset. Exactly. And they're finding that your microbiome, your gut, 
yeah. is just as important to health and mental health as yeah. anything else. That's how food influences you so oh, drastically. Yeah. It has a big impact. And whether people want to believe it, I mean, traditionally, we have not been told this, but we have so much more influence. Oh, my than, God. Yeah. Yeah. And we've been taught that we do. They scientifically confirmed something called epigenetics. Yep. Which means your lifestyle turns. You are born with certain genes. And whether those genes switch on or off depends on what happens in your life. Yeah. And a lot of that we can't control when we're younger, yeah. like traumatic, uh, chronic stress yeah. or adverse childhood experiences. But yeah. so if those genes get turned on, but we can turn them off yeah. as adults. And really, that's all, I don't mean to belittle it, but that's all depression is. It's a yeah. brain pattern. It's genes that have been switched on. And you can reverse it. Absolutely. And we part can... of that solution may be medication. I'm not anti-medication. Yeah. yeah. But you, you, you're kidding yourself if you think it's only going to take a pill. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's your whole lifestyle. Well, it's not only that, okay? The brain is such an incredible beast, okay? Something that, that um, I learned, I, I work with a spiritual mentor since 2004. My, my son has nicknamed her the holistic missile <laughs> because she gets right to the point. But she, she taught a, a class way back then and she talked about the fact that our brains react to whatever we think. But our brain doesn't differentiate. It doesn't understand time or circumstance. Right. So whatever we think, whatever we tell our brain, it takes as, as being real. And she did an exercise in a room with 100 people. And she told us all, and her instructions were odd because the instructions were, okay, this is not true and you can breathe, but in just 15 seconds, I want you all to think that you cannot get any air. You can't breathe for a second. And she repeated, this is not true. You can breathe, but I want you to do it. And I want you to tell me where you feel it in your body. And every single person in the room was amazed that when they told themselves they couldn't breathe, some of them choked up, some of them it was their abdomen that hurt, some of them their hands clenched. There was a visceral reaction because the brain will believe it. And that speaks to what you said about the control that we have. Well, think Which about means. this, Elaine. Your brain secretes neurochemicals, whether something happens or whether you just think about it yeah so what if you use that power to help yourself to help your mental health and physical health visualization um you can't control the random thoughts that pop into your head your subconscious brain does and that mostly comes from pain and fear and 
because your brain's priority is always so protecting you. It doesn't care if you're happy. It wants you alive. So it hangs on to all that bad stuff, all the pain, all the fears, and keeps keeps track of it and easily lets go of all the good stuff. Yeah. That's one reason why we have to make a conscious effort to notice what is good in our life because your brain won't. No, status but quo. What you can do is visualize. I mean, the thoughts that pop into your head, you don't have to believe. And you can also argue with them and yeah. challenge them and reframe them to what you want to believe or what you want to create with your life or how you want to feel or how you want to be. And my, I tell my son that, and he says, well, I don't believe, I say, I don't, it doesn't matter if no. you believe it. Your brain reacts to it, yeah. whether you believe it or not. So direct your mind and your thinking towards what you want to create. Absolutely. Life is hard enough. We yeah. don't have to make it harder. I, I did that for like four decades. That's oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a hard way person for sure. Me too. Uh, another, another um, I was at an all-day course with a, a bunch of people. And one of the women, we were talking about this very thing about, you know, changing your thoughts and how sometimes it can be hard to tell yourself something that's so far from what you believe. And this one woman said, I found that if I think instead of I am this wonderful woman, I could be the type of person who believes I am a wonderful woman. And starting with that bridge, I could be the type of person, whatever that is, takes you to the point down the line where you can say, I am. That's that yeah, and I thought, wow, that's that's really, really good. I'm a very literal person. So, um, you know, even even uh, things like birthday cards and, and what whatever you want to give to somebody. If I read it and it's not like it's too literal or it's too flowery and it's not what I would say to that person, I can't buy the card because I'm so literal. So I understand that my brain will need a bridge if I want to go from there to there. What I also tell my son when he says, I can't, that's, he says that's BS. I can't believe that. I say, okay, don't reach for a thought that you don't believe or you can't believe. Reach for a thought that's a little bit better. Yes. Yeah. And a little bit more encouraging and supportive than the thought you're having. Like you can't go all the way to the top. No. Because you are you are gonna think it's BS. Yeah. But you can reach for a little bit better. For instance, when he lost his job, um reach for I can find another job. Yeah. You don't have to reach for 
I can find a job paying this much money. I can be successful. I can be wildly happy. Yeah. Just reach for something a little, a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's actually that forward. comes from what's called the emotional goddess scale. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, so it's by, um, what's his name? Hicks. He has a whole following. Esther Hicks. Esther Hicks. Yes. Yes. And I don't yes. believe in everything they, they say, but I do believe you can take useful tools out of any philosophy. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are, there are a ton of people out there. Right. Uh, Byron Katie and, right. and uh, Esther Hicks. And, yeah. And Bob Proctor and, and uh, Jack Canfield and, they're, they have pieces that that if you mold them together in something that fits you, then you're going to have a chance to go much farther. The point and the most important thing for people is to do something. Move yourself forward, even if it's a, a nano space right. forward. Move, always be going forward. Because looking back doesn't do anything. A sixteenth of an inch is progress. Absolutely, absolutely. And and for those of you that are in Canada or Britain, who in our audience, that would be half a millimeter or a millimeter, <laughs> just so we we get everybody included. <laughs> well, I have to say, oh my heavens, I've I've kept you for ages. Oh I am so grateful. Well, that you agreed to be my guest. Thank you so, so much. This has been, it's been wonderful. It's been enlightening. It's been uplifting. And um, I, I wish you absolutely the world in all you do. And I look forward to the next time that we get to talk. Well, thank you for inviting me, Elaine. I look forward to it too. And if anybody wants more of the information that I talked about, I, yes. as Elaine mentioned in the beginning, I've written a book called Beat Depression and Anxiety by Changing Your Brain. And it's based on the science of how all this works. It's not just think positive. And yeah. then, as she mentioned, I also have uh, the memoir. And yeah. it's called Sex, Suicide, and Serotonin. And it's, I like to say it's really a self-help book in disguise. Yeah, I like that. I like that with a very catchy title. All of that and more information about Debbie Hampton is going to be on uh, the transcript of the podcast. You'll be able to find it all there. If you want to reach out to either Debbie or myself or anyone, as you know, we do have all the pertinent and important numbers on the website. So I will say thank you so much, Debbie. I'm Elaine Lindsay, your host, Suicides and Forgiveness. And as always, I say, make the very most of your today, every day. And we're going to see you next time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicides and Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. 